Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We'll talk a little bit about the better covenant and better promises today. We'll just uh, see where we go with this. Trust the Lord will lead us. Father, we thank you for your word, and, and we, we welcome your anointing on the word. Agree the fiery darts of distraction uh, against the heart and the mind are quenched, and that you are prospering your word in our hearts right now in Jesus' name. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, lots of talk about the priesthood of Jesus and how amazing it is. Pastor Joel is kind of getting us off on a good start this morning talking about uh, uh, his priesthood, how we need a representative, how we need a sacrifice, a sacrificial one. And, uh, and we come out of chapter 7. Chapter 7, remember too, this is written in about A.D. 64. This is written to Hebrew converts. So this is written to people who have been raised their whole life with the Torah, the five books of the Bible. They've been raised their whole life with the sacrificial system. They've been raised with the tabernacle. They've been raised with an understanding of the law. And now they're coming into Jesus, coming into Christ, uh, Jesus as the Messiah, recognizing him uh, as their Lord. So this is kind of the setting. And he's encouraging them how significant Jesus is. He's encouraging them throughout the book not to go back to Judaism, not to go back to the law, not to go back to their upbringing. And, of course, persecution is increasing during this time. And so they, they're in this period where, where they understand and they see that if they go back to the synagogue, it's safer for them, uh, that, that Christians are coming under heavier and heavier persecution, and that there's safety, more safety at this time back in the synagogue than there is as a Christian. So this is part of why he's so strong in this book or strong in this letter, trying to encourage them that it's not worth it to go back. There's nothing at all that could make it worth it for you to go back, that what you have is the real, what you have is not the shadow, what you have is the substance, what you have is rich, what you have is powerful. And so there's a lot of illustration in this and a lot of comparison to what they were raised in, which he calls the shadow, uh, and now what they have come into in Christ, which he calls the substance. Lots of comparison, comparisons about the priesthood. And he says the priesthood of Jesus is much better. Uh, and uh, he says the promises that we've inherited are much better. Uh, so even, even if they're facing persecution... Uh, no matter what's happening around them, no matter what the climate is like, the cultural situation, of course, you know, uh, much of them were living under Roman domination. And so uh, during this time, you know, Rome was uh, uh, reprobate and immoral and uh, uh, uncleanness filled the land. Uh, if you think we've got things going on in America that disturb you, uh, if you would have been living in that day and you would have been facing much of what they were facing, living out the walk as a believer, uh, it, it was so much more contrary to the walk that you have than what we experience today. 
I mean, what we have is a cakewalk. What we have is, is, is just absolutely amazing compared to what they were living under. And the persecution, the mockery, uh, the confiscation of goods and property and homes and jobs, uh, 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 even the uh, martyrdom that was beginning to take place. So they're living in a really tough time. And he's saying, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's inherited this supreme priesthood, and, and you don't want to go back no matter what because you have the very best. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So let's stop right there. Uh, and I, I want to just uh, uh, capture your attention a little bit about this, uh, this sanctuary throne. Uh, we have to realize that the sanctuary and the throne are two and the same. And I, get you, I want you to get this picture that, that God's throne is his sanctuary. And when Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father, it's not like this is a contradiction of his role or his presentation of himself on our behalf, but he's actually in the sanctuary. He's actually beyond the veil, and the throne is the sanctuary. And so when, he was, when Moses was caught up, uh, uh, and uh, up on the mount for 40 days, and, and uh, he's getting all the instructions for all of this, and God's showing him what, it's, what it looks like. He's actually having visions of the throne. He's actually, the pattern that he saw was the pattern of the real throne. And he's seeing, he's seeing the throne, and he's seeing the presentation of the Lamb before the throne, and and. That's what he was then to build. And, and, and I, I want you to get a picture of this a, a little bit more. So I want to go over to chapter 9. We're going to jump forward. Uh, and I want to go over to chapter 9 as well. And uh, I want you to see this a little bit. So chapter 9, I'm going to page over there myself. And we'll be in the New International. We'll continue with that. Because chapter 8 is going to jump down into some other territory that we'll come back to. Uh, but chapter 9 picks up with a very, para, a very clear parallel to where we just were. And again, I just want you to understand a little bit more about the throne and how the throne was mirrored in the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant specifically. And I want you to see a couple things there with that because uh, it, it has a lot of power for understanding what the Lord's doing, but it also, there's a lot of power for us to tap in to what God is doing in our own inner man. Hebrews chapter 9, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. And a tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand 
and the table and the consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the golden covered ark of the covenant. And this ark covered the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Uh, uh, Zach, do we have that picture? Did we, load, did we load that picture? Remember the pictures I sent you of the ark and the covenant and the tabernacle? We didn't get those loaded? Oh, man. I got some really cool pictures for you. All right, so uh, how many of you are familiar with the, with the tabernacle in the Old Testament at all? Any familiarity out there? A little bit? Okay. So you got this, you know, you got this giant thing that they set up. And it was, you know, a combination of poles and rods and curtains, right? And wherever they would land as they journeyed, they would set this thing up. And by the way, the entrance was about 30 feet wide. It would always face east, significant of even the Garden of Eden, facing east. And the entrance to God is from the east. So this is interesting. Uh, so you would approach, and it's about 30 feet wide, and everything else around the whole tabernacle was like linen, but the, the entrance about 30 feet wide is multicolored. It's just it's beautiful. You think of uh, Joseph's robe that Jacob made him, this multicolored tunic. Well, it was like that. It was purple and red and scarlet. And so it's this multi-woven, you know, colored fabric, four poles in the middle. That was the entry. You come in, and you come into your first court, and your first court has the brazen altar and, uh, 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 and the, the washing labor for washing. And then uh, further on, uh, if we had the picture, we could show you. Further on in the courtyard, then there's another tabernacle, right? And in that other tabernacle, you have uh, it's divided in two. And both of those, both of those like tents, but they're open. Now they need to be open because a lot of smoke's going to go up, right? We're going to be offering sacrifice, and so those need to be open. And so you've got the first chamber, and it's a pretty good sized chamber. Then, then we know that there's a veil separating that first chamber to the second chamber. And in the second chamber, then you've got the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is about. 30 inches wide and 50 inches long. So it'd fit in the back of a pickup truck pretty good. If you, if that gives you kind of a visual, you know. A pickup truck's about four feet wide and about uh, eight feet long, a full-size pickup truck. Not a Datsun, but a full-size pickup truck. So, th you know, so this was set, uh, you know, like in the back of a pickup truck, and it's about 30 inches tall. And, uh, and, and this, this, thing was, this thing was significant. This was a, a acacia wood, and it was carved out, and then it was gold-plated. And then the lid on this is called the mercy seat. The lid, the atonement lid was solid gold, hammered solid gold, by the way. So all of this instructions in Exodus 25, if you want to write that down and read some of that, I don't know that we'll get to it today. But Exodus 25 is where he sees this instruction. The lid is solid gold and uh, like billet aluminum. Have you got billet aluminum wheels? 
That means the wheel's made out of one chunk of aluminum. Well, okay, sorry, guys. So uh, this is like one chunk of gold, and out of that one chunk of gold, they had to make the lid, and then they had to make the cherubim. The cherubim were hammered uh, uh, art. Uh, artisan work that came up off of the lid where these two angels would face each other. And it's there that God's presence would show up when they would come in. Once a year, the high priest would come in and God's presence would be manifest between the cherubim on that solid gold mercy seat. And the presence that would manifest during that time was so significant, so bright, by the way, uh, that before they brought in the, the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled it on the Ark of the Covenant, on the lid, before they did that, they had to put incense on the fire. They had to put a lot of incense in there so they would bring in incense because the incense had to create a cloud. Otherwise, the brightness of God's glory and His visitation would blind the priest. So they would have to be dumping incense on the coals and creating all of this smoke so that the brightness wouldn't blind the priest. And so this is where God would show up, though. And by the way, that ark, it's estimated that it weighed somewhere between 2,300 to 4,000 pounds. Just the lid alone. Imagine the lid of this hammered, uh, a hammered gold lid, solid gold, 30 by 50 with two angels on it. Uh, just the weight of that alone was significant, right? And so this is the ark though, that was carried by multiple priests to every single location, and then they would set up. And, and what's amazing about all of this is that, that God spoke from the place of that ark, and that 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 ark, that place is called the mercy seat. So M Moses saw this stuff. When he's up on the mountain, he sees this stuff. He sees that God's, God's seat, God's, God's throne is known as a place of mercy. Isn't that amazing? The, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments were in the ark, and those Ten Commandments were God's requirements of us. And so it's interesting that the law is in the ark. The law, God's covenant requirements, are under the mercy seat. And those, those requirements of God would testify with regard to our righteousness or our unrighteousness, our perfection or imperfection, but what prevailed over the testimony of that law was mercy when they would bring the blood. Mercy triumphs over. Isn't that amazing? God cannot divert from his nature, which is holiness, which is justice, but married with his nature is mercy and compassion and love. And so that sacrifice that God would have brought in by the priest would allow him to show forth his mercy. I love this stuff. It's so good. 
The ark contained the golden jar of manna, picking it up here in chapter 9. Aaron's staff that budded, the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. Verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people which they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. By the way, that's the time that we live in. We live in this time of the new order. Verse 11, but when Christ came as the high priest of good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Isn't that cool stuff? Is that all right? Now, I want you to see this, though, that, that, you know, that God, would, God would talk out of you know, the, 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 the center of that mercy seat. That's where the voice of the Lord would come even. When it talks about Moses coming in and, and uh, he would come to the edge of the tent of meeting and he would come to the veil and God would talk to him out of the mercy seat from between the cherubim. And I, I don't know, this stuff just, it, it, it thrills me when we realize that that courtyard and that tabernacle is an illustration of us today. That what was happening in that courtyard is an illustration of what happens with us today. Is that our body is very much a parallel to that outer courtyard. And our body is washed and our body is prepared. And our body is that which we bring under the cleansing of the Lord. And then the next, the next part of that courtyard is the, the inner, the holy place. And that is a parallel, a representation of the soul, the soul man. In the tabernacle, we actually have a picture of spirit, soul, and body. And that inner courtyard, that holy of holies, that place where Aaron and the, 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 the high priests would go, that holy of holies, that's a parallel to your spirit, man, right now today. 
That's a parallel to your spirit man, to my spirit man. This is where the presence of the Lord now dwells. We're talking about crazy mysteries, that what Moses saw in God's throne is this, this throne, but yet sanctuary. God's throne is this, this place that, I mean, we might see it or picture it, you know, like out of something out of England or like a monarch or a, something out of Disney where we've got this throne and this king. But it's actually a sanctuary where worship is transpiring and where the sacrifice of Jesus, the offering of Jesus, is now, even now presently, being represented before the Father on our behalf. And what we see that was in the Old Testament tabernacle a picture of that and how God would come and talk. His voice would be heard out of the mercy seat when the blood would be brought and sprinkled on that mercy seat. Now that's happening with us. When we apply the, the blood of Christ to our inner man, when we apply the blood of Christ to our heart, when we open up our heart and say, we want the blood of Christ right here, it's the welcome for the voice of the Lord to begin to talk and to begin to show Himself as guide, as coach, as supreme, as healer, as helper. And this is how we tap into what He calls in chapter 8, this better priesthood with better, with a, with, with better promises. It, he actually gets activated within us as we, as we apply the blood, as we sprinkle the blood. And the blood, of course, is symbolic. It's not just symbolic, but we understand things through symbolism. The blood represents the giving, Jesus giving himself on our behalf and sealing this covenant with God on our behalf so that we could have access to God. He gave up his life so that we can have access to God. And when we come to Him, when we come to God, we say, let that, let that price be applied to my heart. Let that be, price be applied to my debt. Let that price be applied to my situation. When we approach God through the blood of Jesus, then there's this welcome of His presence. There's this welcome of His presence and the welcome of His voice. The welcome of his voice. And you know how he wants to lead us? He wants to lead us with his voice. He wants to lead us with his voice. How many of you know just being led by his voice is sufficient? It is powerful. It is rich. It's what God's ordained, that you would be led by his voice. Let's go back to chapter 8 and uh, pick it up where we were. And that's at verse number 6. And I want you to, I want you to see, uh, we're going to linger a little bit on better covenant and better promises. Is that all right? But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. I want to read that out of the Passion Translation. 
But now Jesus, this is verse 6, but now Jesus the Messiah has accepted a priestly ministry which far surpasses theirs. Since he is the catalyst of a better covenant, which contains far more wonderful promises. Now, again, he's comparing and, and he's encouraging them that there's nothing better than Jesus, no one better than Jesus. No, no, no need to look for anything beyond Jesus. And he's saying that his priesthood is superior to that which these people were raised with, the priesthood of Aaron, but he's saying that also there's a better covenant with better promises. I, I've got a few notes on this. What is the better covenant? Why is it better? We can go to those on the screen potentially. Better covenant. It's better because he is the sacrifice and he is the representative. By the way, his sacrifice is perfect. Every sacrifice that was made in Israel was simply a picture of him. It was simply a shadow of him. It wasn't, it wasn't a perfect sacrifice. It was the picture of a perfect sacrifice. So we have a better covenant because he is the sacrifice and he is the priestly representative. It's better because it's made with a perfect man. By the way, the sacrifice that would connect us to God, that would bring us communion, that would bring us unity, that would bring us intimacy with the Father, had to be the sacrifice of a man. Because when Adam fell, the only way back to God was that we would come back through a perfect man. An angel couldn't bring us back to God. There's no other being that could bring us back to God. We had to be bought back with one who was human. That's why Jesus had to come and become this one that was a man. Better because he cannot fail in his ministry. Number four, better because he has empathy upon our weakness. The sacrifice of a calf, the sacrifice of a goat, the sacrifice of a turtle dove, the sacrifice of a pigeon. There was no connection of empathy. It was just simply a picture of the lamb. But now the real, the significant, the substance, the sacrifice of Jesus has come. And that sacrifice of Jesus is one who has empathy upon us in our weakness. Better because his sacrifice is perpetual. It, his sacrifice, he ever lives now to present this sacrifice of himself before the Father on our behalf. There's never a moment where you can't apply the blood of Jesus to your heart. There's never a moment where you can't tap in to the, to the grace of God now, the grace of God that flows out of the mercy seat because the blood of Jesus has been offered on your behalf. And that blood, we don't understand these mysteries, that blood is continually being offered on your behalf, continually before the Father, around His throne, which is called a mercy seat. And so rather than you receiving the judgment that you deserve, that's written on that testimony that stone of testimony against you, you're receiving the grace of God. You're receiving the touch of God. You're receiving the encouragement of God. You're receiving the friendship of God. Come on, that's rich. 
Better because he offered himself fully to Father to satisfy our debt. Better because this knits us to Father by faith. We, we, as we believe this, as we tap into this, we're knit to Father. We're knit to Father fully. That's why we move from servant to son, right? The sacrifices of the Old Testament were a picture of this, but they didn't knit us in communion with Father. And the sacrifice of Jesus knits us in communion with Father. And lastly, better because it restores the walk of faith. It restores the walk of faith. Faith cometh by, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith cometh by hearing. How do we hear? We hear the voice of God. When the blood of Jesus is applied to the mercy seat or the core of our heart, then the Holy Spirit takes up residence on the inside of us. And our spirit man begins to hear the voice of the Lord. Next, I want you to go to this and look at the better promises of the new covenant. He says that not only have we received a better covenant, but we've received better promises. We receive the promise of Jesus representing us. He ever lives to represent us. Number two, we receive the promise of a clean conscience. How many of you know if you're dealing with guilt and shame and heaviness inwardly, but yet you've come to Jesus, that's a lying spirit. That's a lying spirit. That's a testimony of condemnation that's from the enemy that you can dismiss. You don't have to listen to that. Literally, uh, uh, this is, this is uh, maybe why at the Wolf House we loved, uh, we shouldn't, I shouldn't say love. I've got to be careful here. Uh, Papa especially, though. I like spankings a lot better than... Uh, Sorry. At the Wolf House, I like spankings a lot better than uh, uh, you're going to be grounded for the next week. You know why? Immediately we deal with the heart, and immediately we restore the relationship. Somebody's grounded for the next week, we're all going to be miserable, right? I'm going to feel like a worm. They're going to feel like a worm. We're going to be disconnected. It breaks fellowship. I mean, this is going to be terrible, right? Just a swat to the bottom. Let's get this over with, right? Did you know the moment you come to God and, and you repent and, and you, the moment you apply the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus to your heart, you can walk away from that moment, walk away from that altar, walk away from that prayer, and you are restored that moment. You don't have to grovel any groveling voice, any voice of condemnation, any voice of, uh, of worthlessness needs to be dismissed that moment. That's a lying voice. That's not from your Father. That's from an unclean spirit. The moment you walk away from making application of the blood of Jesus, that moment you are set free, that moment you're on your way into walking again in restored relationship with your Father. And we have to know that. And I think that's why God likes spankings. Got it from him, probably. I don't know. 
You pr the promise of eternal life. We inherit that. We, we inherit the promise of his righteousness covering us, right? So even while we're imperfect, we're covered with his righteousness. Not a one of us in this room are perfect, but we're covered with his righteousness. Yeah, and he might show you something this afternoon that needs a little adjustment. But in the meantime, he still has you covered. Jesus, his righteousness has been imputed. It's been flooded. It's been deposited into your spiritual bank account. So he knows about stuff. He knows about stuff tomorrow that you don't even know about, that he knows when you get to tomorrow, you're going to blow it. And guess what? He's going to cover you all the way until that happens even though he knows it's going to happen. In his foreknowledge, he knows that tomorrow you're going to make a mistake. But he's not going to withdraw his covering of you. His righteousness has been flooded into your spiritual bank account. And when you get to tomorrow, you're going to be like, oh, what in the world? Why did I do that? Let's apply the blood of Jesus. And we go, we go from freshly applying the blood of Jesus to another encounter of freshly applying the blood of Jesus, maybe on Wednesday, maybe on Thursday, right? As the Holy Spirit's giving us illumination, and He's showing us, oh, here's something you need to tweak. Here's something that's not of your nature. Here's something that I've got, some, I've got a higher way for you to walk that out. And as we, as we hear from Him and respond, His voice continues to draw near to us because we keep our heart fresh and supple to Him. Amen? The promise of the glory of God. He prayed that in John 17. Father, since they're going to be one with me, we're going to share glory with them. The promise of His authority over the enemy. Hallelujah. When you're in Him, the enemy doesn't know the difference between you and Him. The promise of healing for the body. By his stripes we were healed. See, when he took the penalty of our own debt upon himself, then he delivered us from the weight of sickness and disease. That's why we can say no to it. That's, that's why we can push it away. That's why we can resist. That's why we can believe for the touch of God in our bodies. The promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the promise of the outpouring Holy Spirit, the promise of a transformed inner nature, the promise of an upgrade to son rather than servant, and the promise of every blessing that belongs to Jesus. Amen? Come on, let's stand this morning as we close. We live in the most privileged time on the planet. We, we live under... Such an open heaven and such a blessed time in God. We live in such a day where so many things are coming to pass, so many things are being fulfilled. We live in such a privileged era where we have come into the new covenant and we are partakers of this better covenant with better promises, and the very glory that shone in the mercy seat in the tabernacle now shines in our hearts. 
now shines in our hearts. It's a glory we can activate. It's a glory we can lean into. It's a glory we can revere and radiate. It's a glory we can represent and represent. It's a glory we can abide in. It's a, it's a glory and a richness that's from Him. I think this is why Paul said to Timothy at one point, uh, don't, don't let that glory, don't let that glory be quieted. Uh, don't let that glory be put aside. Paul writing to Timothy, stir up the spirit that's in you. Stir up the spirit that's in you. That spirit that came through the laying on of hands, he says, stir up that spirit that's in you. And I think that that's a word for every one of us this morning, that we would lean into the glory of the Lord that is ours, that we would welcome the abiding glory that is ours, that we would look to the abiding glory that is ours. Life has a way of pulling us in every dimension, in every way. This is part of the enemy's tactic, of course, is to distract us from who we are, who we've become, and the greater glory. To distract us from the greater covenant and the greater promises. To draw our eyes away to the mundane and the common, to the earthy and the natural, and to get us disconnecting those from the sacred rather than knitting the two together. Lord, we ask for a refreshing this morning of the greater glory. Come on, would you begin to do that where you're at? Welcome a refreshing of the greater glory. The voice of the Lord on the golden altar of your heart the presence of the Lord, the bright and the shining presence of the Lord. A refreshing of the embers of your heart, the offering up of incense. Lord, we welcome a refreshing. We welcome. See, the, we, we do this as we, as we give attention to His presence and attention to His ministry, attention to what He's done. This is part of of why we gather. This is part of why. Why we turn our attention to Him. Why we have a courtship with Him. Part of why we do this is that we would give fresh attention. Fresh attention. The rituals of Israel were a picture of the rituals of our own heart that we would keep the incense offering up. That we would keep the coals hot. That we would keep applying the blood of Him who is sacrificed on our behalf. Father, we do that today. We welcome the glory of Your voice, the glory of Your visitation, the glory of Your presence, the glory of Your presence, Lord. We welcome the glory of Your presence, Lord.
Oh, come on, bring a re-stirring this morning. Even as Paul said to Timothy, stir up again the spirit that is in you. Stir up again the spirit that is in you. Stir up again the spirit that is in you. Stir up again the spirit that is in you. Fresh application. Lord, I want to walk with you. Lord, I receive your payment on my behalf. Jesus, I'm thankful for what you've done for me. I received the sacrifice that you offered. As communion with the Father, intimacy with the Father, friendship with the Father. Relationship that I need, Lord. These are relationships that I need. Relationships that I need, Lord. Forgive me for taking you for granted. The inner light, the inner illumination of the Holy Spirit for granted. Come, breathe fresh on my altar. Speak fresh on the altar of my heart, Father. Let the richness of your voice come fresh again, Lord. Bring the application of the blood of Jesus to sin. To rebellion, to pride, to doing it my way. I bring the application of the blood of Jesus to my heart, to my heart, to my inner man. To receive the washing from above, Lord. The washing, the cleansing. Condemnation has to go. Condemnation has to go. Guilt has to go. The testimony of shame and of guilt has to go. It has to go. It has to go. It's not welcome here because I've been made right with my Father. I've been made right with my Father. I've been made right. I've been made one with my Father. Glory is my inheritance. Glory is my inheritance. Prayer team, if you'd come and we'll just worship as we go this morning. I encourage you and invite you. Don't leave as you came in. Don't leave as you came in. You know what refreshing means to your own heart. Oh, Holy Spirit, we welcome the refreshing within. We welcome the refreshing within. fresh application of the blood of Jesus and the presence and the glory of Father. Let's worship as we go.
Jesus is coming. 